0: People try to put us down just because we dork around. Things they do look awful cold. I hope we get to see no time to die before we get old. This is my generation, baby. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Dorkfest, the podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to tune in. We've got a terrific show lined up for you. While I'm not exactly hosting an intergalactic kegger down here, I do have a few other dorks joining me. Uh, first, he is here because he is the best of the best of the best, sir, with honors. Agent Jay Jordan Freemuth. Howdy, howdy. How we doing, everybody? Great, man. If we need, uh, if we need a, a Doug ran down on foot, uh, are, you, are, are you there for us, Jay?
1: I think so, yeah. All right,
0: terrific. Also, rolling with us is the dork who really ties the room together, the big Gay Bowski. Gabe Freemuth.
2: Yeah, uh, Gabe or Gabo or El Gabarino. if you're not into the whole brevity thing.
0: Is that how you dress on a weekday?
2: Look, just give me a white Russian and I'll be happy, okay?
0: (laughs) One Caucasian coming up. (laughs) Uh, Well, dorks, we got three. You think that's enough? Do you think we need one more? You think we need one more. Okay, we'll get one more. It's not Danny Ocean, but it is Danny Freemuth.
3: It'll be nice working with some proper villains again. Good to see all you gents. So happy to be
0: speaking with all of you again and listeners. If you share that sentiment, please be so good as to leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. Also, please reach out to us on Instagram. That's dorkfest underscore podcast. We share some pretty bold opinions on here, and we'd love to hear what you think about them. Most notably, I'd like to hear what you all think of Dan's three least defensible takes from the history of, podca- of the podcast. I've got them, uh, my own list here. That is Sean Connery as uh, Henry Jones being the best casting choice of all time, Benjamin Sisko and Captain Picard being able to coexist on the same crew, and of course, Rise of Skywalker being a halfway decent film. Um, if you agree with me, listeners, that these are completely indefensible choices, please uh l- let us know at on instagram dorkfest underscore podcast
3: and if you think those takes are all super shrewd and intelligent angles we I think we'd also like to hear that that sentiment as well
0: perhaps we'll we'll, we'll set up a poll and then we can see <laughs> once once <laughs> and for all. Which which way the listeners stand? Some are, somehow I feel comfortable in, in my judgments.
3: Are you are you trying to? get, I thought you said we need one more. It sounds like you're <laughs> trying to kick me off the podcast.
0: Well, <laughs> we need your financial backing. As you devoted listeners know full well, nostalgia is a very powerful force on this podcast and among its dorky co-hosts. Uh, thus far. We focus more on the distant past, however, movies like the original Star Wars trilogy and Jaws, TV shows like Star Trek and Columbo, and musical acts like Bruce Springsteen and The Grateful Dead, all of whom debuted well before any of us reached the age of ascension. Well, in this episode, we're going to turn our time circuits forward, but only slightly, as we focus on movies from our generation the formative flicks we watched in our friends' basements, college dorms, or maybe even on a fancy new IMAX screen, if our parents were paying for it, that is. For this podcast, each dork is going to be ranking the top five movies of their generation. For the purposes of this podcast, we're defining each dork's generation as starting the year they entered high school, and ending the year they graduated college. So for Dan, that'll be 1996 to 2004. For myself, 1998 to 2006. For Gabe, 2003 to 2011. And for Jordan, 2004 to 2012. He did a a single postgraduate year at Pitt, so he's finagling the numbers a little bit to get 2012 in there.
1: And we'll find out later why I did that. I,
0: I knew there was a reason while we were having that conversation earlier this week. I knew you were trying to skew it to get 2012 in there. I cannot wait to see what that is. Can't wait. And so we, while we all are stuck with the dreaded millennial label, there is a decent amount of variation between us, which we hope will vary the selections a bit. I also want to mention that while we each may have a few guesses in mind None of us have informed the other dorks of which movies they will be selecting. So this will all be as new to us as it will be to you, the listeners. And hopefully there'll be some snubs and surprises along the way. And Now, dorks, before we delve deeply into our dream within a dream, let's spin our totems with a warm-up question. And I'd like to know what each of your favorite guilty pleasure movies are from this time period. We're going to start with Dan with your guilty pleasure movie from the years 1996 to 2004.
3: So I'm going to begin with the year 1997 and it's actually a film that we referenced on or I referenced in our most recent podcast because the star of this film is none other than the wonderful Harrison Ford with 1997's offering of Air Force One. The time period in which I'm looking at, from 96 to 2004, was filled with what I like to call outrageous action movies. And while this one did not make my top five, I just love it so, so much. First of all, Harrison Ford uh, as President James Marshall. Tough to beat his performance. In these trying times, that's a president we can all root for. So he is phenomenal. Gary Oldman as the Russian terrorist on the plane, he just goes for broke on this. He is absolutely outstanding. Uh, The cast is just phenomenal. In addition to Harrison Ford and Gary Oldman, we've got Glenn Close, we've got Dean Stockwell, we've got William H. Macy, just a phenomenal cast. And Harrison Ford delivers yet another really relatable and enjoyable performance, but it's got plenty of outrageous action sequences as well, particularly that death-defying aerial escape out of the plane, the parachute from the crew, just a totally enjoyable movie, my guilty pleasure pick.
0: That's a really good quality movie for this guilty pleasure question. Do you remember actually where you saw that movie
3: first? Absolutely do. Nani took us to that. We were up visiting in Michigan, five nine two, and uh, Nani took. It must have just been you and me. I don't think Jordy yeah, was, was just, there for that. Yeah, but, just the yeah we saw that in the theaters. It was as excellent then as it is now.
0: What what, what oh, what a long time ago that was. You and I flew by ourselves. So, this, when was this? Ninety seven. So I'm thirteen, and you're sixteen. Yep. And we're flying unaccompanied minors. Dad allowed to walk right up to the gate to, yep, to see us off. A very oh, different
3: time indeed. Yeah,
0: indeed. So that means I'll be going next uh, for the years 1998 to 2006. And I'm going to go with one that, that I have a feeling will be considered by our listening audience as a bit more of a guilty pleasure. And I'm going to 1999's Notting Hill. Romantic comedies. Uh, we have not recorded a podcast on our top five favorite romantic comedies. I kind of doubt that we will. That could be an interesting one. Um, but I'll just spoil it right now that Notting Hill would be number one for me. Um, Hugh Grant's, uh, you know, hesitating tone of voice. This was probably the first time that I actually heard it. And so I hadn't gotten annoyed by it yet. Uh, Julia Roberts gives a great performance. All the great witty british dialogue is terrific and it's got the cool elvis costello song at the end i am a sucker for this movie it is my choice gabe you're up next for the years 2003 to 2011
2: josh i know that movie that's a that is a a good cute little movie and i never expected that would rank so highly for you
0: cute is right and uh, that's why i put it in the guilty pleasure category but yeah i admit i enjoy that movie
2: cute just like josh (laughs) I, uh, I mean, I think it does say something that I bet I'm just looking at all of our faces right now. And I, I think we probably could put together a, a top romantic comedies podcast with relative simplicity. So actually maybe that's something as a, as a change of pace we should consider for the future, but add it
0: to the topics, list, There we go, man. uh,
2: not to, uh, hold up the proceedings. Um, I'm going with something that, um, I actually flirted with putting on my list proper and, um, In the end, as I was thinking about it, while I do hold it um, somewhat personally dear, I completely respect the uh, sharply divided opinion that this film occasionally engenders. It's not that it's terribly controversial, let's say, it's just that uh, you kind of either buy into it or you don't. And that movie is 2005's Robert Rodriguez's Sin City. I should say Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller's. Um, That's how it it occasionally gets credited. Um, It's a massive cast, just to start with that. I mean, it's, um, it's Bruce Willis, it's Clive Owen, it's, uh, Mickey Rourke in a tremendous turn. It's Benicio del Toro, it's Jessica Alba, it's Alexis Bledel, Rosario Dawson, Carla Gugino, Rutger Hauer, Elijah Wood makes a turn. Um, Tarantino standby, Michael Madsen, uh, appears in a great role and Tarantino actually gets a, a, a bit of a directing credit in this because the past on how the Directors Guild handled this is insane. All that aside, it's incredibly violent. Um, there is no necessarily good character in the movie or just looking for diamonds in the rough of what sin city is, but it is gorgeous and no film before or since has, I think approached the level of comic book translation, uh, that this comes, this comes from a series of graphic novels by the aforementioned Frank Miller, um, which are presented as this sort of, uh, hyper neo-noir. It's, it's, um, the pulpiest of the pulp. I mean, it might as well be called pulp fiction, um, for what it goes for, but, uh, um, it's hard to sanction some of what goes on in there, but it's also, I think, just an incredible example of um, of what the film format can do uh, when confronted with adapting a popular comic book. It entertains me year after year, but yeah, boy, it can be occasionally hard to stomach.
0: Yeah, Gabe, I, I think re- regardless of what anyone may think of it, the originality of that movie cannot be debated. Uh, that, that was l- like nothing I had ever seen.
2: And something that keeps me coming back to it, too, is remembering that Robert Rodriguez, as the kind of filmmaker he is, handles so much of that movie himself. As often as not, he's on the lens. Um, he's credited also with the score. And the, the kerfuffle... Boy, how often where, does
0: that happen, where the director scores his own movie? Seriously. I, did, I did, didn't know that. Yeah.
2: Um, and the kerfuffle with the Director's Guild is that he uh, wanted to credit both himself and Frank Miller with, uh, with the work. Because he called it a comic book translation. And, and some of these... I mean, it is freakishly accurate sometimes the the page to screen translation the director's guild wouldn't let him have frank miller and him share credit so he offered to frank miller you get to direct it frank miller did not accept that so he resigned from the director's guild and they uh, it's it is all of their movies it, it is a collective effort and um yeah that it comes off as well as it does with performances as good as they are considering that most of it again shot in the green box we so often deride <laughs> it really comes off well
0: Fortunately, there is no podcast guild keeping us from sharing the credit here on Dorkfest, the podcast. Uh, no, no resignations required. Uh, Jordan, finish us off with the years 2004 to 2012. What's your guilty pleasure movie?
1: So I'm going to go with a film from 2007, and I'm taking this in a slightly different direction. I'm thinking more of the guilty pleasure as a movie that I am ashamed to say that I once liked. Uh, That I once thought was legitimately good. And that film is the 2007 film across the universe. I specifically remember watching this movie coming out of it. I believe it was in IMAX and thinking just what a great film. What a great addition of all of these songs. What a great cast. You have Jim Sturgis. He's clearly, you know, going to become something big. Spoiler alert. He didn't. Um, you have Evan Rachel Wood of uh, Westworld Notoriety, who actually did become something big. Um, you also have Gabe's boy Bono um, and Eddie Izzard playing the magnificent Mr. Kite. Um, so this was a film that I, you know, I, just, I just really remember being entranced by it in the theater and thinking how fantastic it was. Um, and I can tell you exactly how many times I've seen it since, and it is exactly zero.
0: Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Terrific job, dorks. Exactly what we were looking for. Jay, I love the interpretation you went with that because I guarantee that each of us has a, a movie like that where we, we watched it either in theaters or on DVD or maybe a bootleg, and we thought like, wow, this is some groundbreaking, earth-shattering cinema uh, and are terribly ashamed of that opinion now. Uh, Definitely
1: went more on the uh, guilty end of the spectrum as opposed to the pleasure Rather
0: than the pleasure one, yeah. Excellent job. Good variation. This is what we love to see here on Dorkfest, the podcast. Now it's time to get to the meat of the episode. Dorks, this is your time. Now go out there and take it. For one point, we are going to run through our honorable mentions, which... Of the dorks, favorite movies from their generation landed just outside the top five. We limited this to three choices. Each dork only gets to put three honorable mentions in, or up to three. And so these are the movies that landed just outside the top five. Dan is going to give us all three of his from 1996 to 2004. Dan, you're up for
3: one point. Okay, I will list my three in chronological order. My three honorable mentions, starting with the 1997 film, L.A. Confidential. This is a tremendous movie, and I really considered putting it inside my top five. Guy Pearce, uh, Russell Crowe, James Cromwell, Ken Basinger, Danny DeVito, David Strathairn, and unfortunately, Kevin Spacey. And Kevin Spacey movies, as good as they were, are just a little tough to watch right now. I know that's a shame to all the other cast and crew involved in that movie, but his movies have soured on me just a little bit. Um, As unfortunate as that may be, it's still a tremendous movie with some great performances just on the outside of my top five looking in. Fast forward two years, 1999, Office Space. Anyone who has ever worked a cubicle, nine to five office job knows that this movie is funny because it is oh so accurate. This portrays real life in an office. It seems ridiculous. If you've never worked a nine to five cubicle office job and then you do that and you realize that the reason this movie is funny is because it is so stinking accurate. And my final honorable mention, Gabe, I am dreadfully sorry that this is on the outside of the top five looking in, but I told myself that for the purposes of this brief, I was going to steer away from our marquee franchises. So spoiler alert, within my top five, there is no Star Wars, there is no Star Trek, there is no James Bond, and there is no Lord of the Rings. So the Fellowship of the Ring in 2001 is my last honorable mention This is a beautiful film. It is a tremendous score. It looks great. The action is phenomenal. The performances are wonderful. But I told myself we were going to steer away from the marquee franchises, or at least I was, for this particular podcast. And so with that, I left the Fellowship of the Ring on the outside looking in.
2: I didn't think any franchise movie was going to appear on this list at all. So the fact that it's here is I'm just overjoyed to hear that it's you know made its way. It slipped on the ring and and you know came in, uh, you know under Sauron's nose.
3: I, I adore I adore that movie, game. I mean, for as much grief as I on this podcast give you for your Lord of the Rings and Marvel fascinations, and there's plenty of it, and and it is and it is well deserved. Yeah. Uh, that that first Lord of the Rings movie. In fact, I mean, the original trilogy is great. But Fellowship, in particular, is the, is the best of the bunch. The best oh. one. Like I said, it's, it's beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It's well cast. It's
1: well acted. Uh, but yeah, just, just on the outside for me looking in. Now, Dan, sorry, is that the story of Bilbo or Frodo Baggins? <laughs> Easy. It's, it's, a new, it's, a, it's a new podcast. We're turning over a new leap. I, I don't think I've thrown out
3: any factual inaccuracies just yet, but we are very early on.
0: Yeah, we're only on the one-point question. Uh, But, Dan, going back to your choices, L.A. Confidential is one that that I saw that it was the year 1997 and was disappointed that I couldn't put it in my list of considerations, and Office Space was in my sort of broader list of considerations. Two tremendous choices there.
2: And Office Space remains to this day an eminently quotable and, as you say, relatable movie. I mean, it's as entertaining today, the (laughs) – Maybe the technology has changed. Maybe some of the companies are named differently, but boy, is it the same job.
0: People still use staplers. Still use
3: PBS reports. And to your point, Gabe, yeah, I mean, that that movie's 21 years old, but the humor is as vivid today as it was 20 years ago.
2: Yeah, so Josh, um, I'm going to need you to go ahead and give us your honorable mentions now. Um, And you know what, if you could... Uh, After that, go ahead and let me give mine. That would be great.
0: Yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, My honorable mentions for the years 1998 to 2006. I'm going to start with. uh, I'll 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 do what Dan did and go in chronological order. Too. I'm going to go to 1998. The movie is Rounders. Matt Damon, Edward Norton, John Malkovich, John Turturro, Martin Landau, with a delightful performance. It's so great to see Martin Landau crushing it again in Rounders and Famka Jansen with, with a really nice role in that movie too. But this movie is on my list because I was so into poker in college. Uh, this movie did not originate that interest, but it definitely did foster it and spur it on and, uh, you know, the three, four nights a week when I was playing poker in college, this movie was quoted all the time and it's rewatchable to to this day. Damon and Norton especially give tremendous performances. Uh, Second movie is from the year 2000, Snatch. Guy Ritchie, Brad Pitt, Jason Statham, Benicio del Toro. This was the movie that was the go-to in a friend's basement for me in high school. This was on all the time. We quoted it all the time. Do you like degs? Do you know what nemesis means? I mean, this was just over and over and over again. The characters in this movie were so cool. And I, I when I first saw it, I had not seen Lock, Stock, and Two Smoke and Barrels. So the filmmaking style captured me as well. And my last honorable mention will be 2001's Ocean's Eleven. Steven Soderbergh, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Elliot Gould, Carl Reiner, Julia Roberts, Andy Garcia. The list goes on and on and on for this movie. Another movie that is just terribly cool. I guess maybe that's the the sort of theme for my honorable mentions is movies that I watched and I thought like, man, I wish I could be as cool as the people in these movies. All tremendously rewatchable movies, uh, and that's what has kept me interested in them throughout the years. These are still movies that I love coming back to. Uh, these are my honorable mentions.
2: I, I love that, Josh. And especially, I feel you, on the cool factor for Ocean's Eleven. Um, I, I was definitely looking up to pretty much every single one of those folks. But uh, Clooney and Pitt, especially in those movies, that is absolute height of like early 2000s cool right there. And yeah. with you know the jazz throwback soundtrack behind them, fantastic.
0: Brad Pitt in that movie, he's just, just like eating nachos and wings throughout half of it. and
2: he, In every and he's, single
3: scene that he's yeah. in. Yeah, but he does it in a suit, and he looks amazing, and he doesn't get any nacho cheese or salsa on his suit or on his collared shirt, and he still looks like a million bucks.
2: I would imagine part of that has to do with being Brad Pitt. But that's just a, a theory.
0: There's also a nice um, callback to an old fuddy-duddy movie that I like when um, George Clooney writes on the card nice pull uh, to as a message to Matt Damon as a callback to The Great Train Robbery, an old fuddy-duddy movie that I enjoy.
2: That sequence is um, itself a, a notable for the kind of thing that makes Ocean's Eleven cool. I mean, the way they film that with the kind of um, sort of like fewer, you know, lower frame rate where everything's a little blurry and you're sort of tracking the specific moments of everything and you got that cool backing track behind it. Yeah, that's, that movie drips with cool. But enough about your choices, let's go to mine because uh, they're not as good. Um, <laughs> so continuing with the honorable mentions uh, in chronological order uh, thing, it sort of breaks my heart, um, or at least it breaks my uh, 17-year-old me's heart uh, to put this one up there. But um, 2006's The Departed is the first movie on my uh, honorable mentions list. This is a movie that I adored when it came out. This was sort of my first theatrical Scorsese movie. I knew who the man was. I'd seen his work, um, but The Departed was it, it arrived like a whirlwind um, in my brain when it came out. And it's um, it's got it still has a tremendous cast. It is like Tarantino levels of violence um, and nearly gleefully so. And you're exhausted by the end. But I had to. I think I had to pull it off. My top five number two is um, 2009's District Nine, which is a perfect little gem of a movie that I've always loved. Uh, Peter Jackson produces uh, a Neil Blomkamp movie that um, is kind of, the man has made movies since then, but this is his sort of first and best hit. Um, And the way it uses the story of an alien um, arrival, not an invasion, not really a first contact. It's barely that. Um, With the way it frames that story to comment on you know, apartheid era, South Africa, and all that. It, it, it is a tremendous story, and um, uh, the man at the at the center, whose name I have forgotten right now, the actor who plays Vigus Van uh, um turns in just an incredible performance, I think. And finally, uh, number three on a far lighter scale, but no less deep for the human condition, is 2010 Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which uh, I just rewatched to confirm that that this deserved this placement last night. And it does. It's delightful. You've got Michael Cera doing maybe the best version of what he's known for for the entirety of the 2000s. You've got Edgar Wright, who may be the filmmaker of his era, although I'm going to contest that same opinion myself later, handling uh, an adaptation of a a comic book that um, also itself just delights in minutia of pop culture. Um, It's a delightful movie. Everybody that you know is in it. Um, Check it out if you haven't. It's also got a pretty banger soundtrack.
0: Gabe, I'm right there with you with uh, on the Departed being my theatrical introduction to Scorsese. Um, I-, I had seen Goodfellas before this, before I saw Departed, but on the big screen, it really did c- come across different. That ending. Yes. I mean, yeah. Boy. I mean, the rat is the. Even, much. Even, yeah, even w- when I was watching it, then I thought that's a bit on the nose. But um, th- the scene that sticks out to me is Nicholson pounding Leo's hand with his Timberland boot on the pool table, with yeah. a stone song <laughs> playing in the background. Yeah. That in the theater was yikes.
2: The one that um, I remember stood out for me is um, well, it's actually it's almost any time they use a cell phone because that they captured perfectly a very particular era of cell phone usage. It, it's kind of, it's similar to the wire really, but it's on, it's on the like the cinematic side, like T9 is in full effect. It's just before smartphones are really going to be a thing.
0: Yeah. Damon um, texting in his pocket. In his pocket. I, I, I yeah. watched this I was yeah. like, yes, I can do that.
2: Yep. Um, and yeah, just, and the way, you know, they even change out their SIM cards and stuff. I mean, it's brilliant. It, it's, it's, um, and plus just a host of, I do think this might be the, there's nowhere near enough room to put all the right accolades for Scorsese's work in this decade on any of our lists but this might also be as far as Leonardo DiCaprio goes the most Leo role and maybe his best one I think ever I think The Departed makes the best use of what Leonardo DiCaprio brings to the table
1: the one where he really should have won best actor Um, great score and soundtrack with The Departed too, with Howard Shore Howard Shore Um, did a tremendous job but, but spoiler alert we'll be talking more about that film later (laughs) <laughs> so I'll, 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 I'll talk through my um, honorable mentions quickly here, continuing to go in uh, chronological order. We'll start with 2006, uh, Little Miss Sunshine. The first, like, indie film that I found myself really, really attached to, you have Abigail Breslin and Paul Dano, a couple of younger actors at the time, really bringing in great performances there. You also have Steve Carell, like, just as he was starting his fame with The Office, you have this other film that sort of transitions into his later career as well. And Adam Arkin, who is just, I just love everything that he's in. Uh, or Alan Arkin, sorry, Alan Arkin, uh, just a wonderful performance there. Next one will be the 2008 film, An Education, um, starring Carey Mulligan and Peter Sarsgaard, who, like, darn it, if I don't love everything that he's in. You know, perhaps maybe a lesser known actor, not in a lot of big films, but I, I just really enjoy a lot of his performances. And last, but certainly not least, 2009's Where the Wild Things Are. Um, Now, this might be in part because it was my favorite book growing up, uh, but I also feel like they just did such a wonderful job of capturing the imagination of that film and also an incredible cast. You have the late James Gandolfini in it. You have Mark Ruffalo prior to being the Hulk. Um, Paul Dano, again, appearing twice on my honorable mentions list. Um, uh, Catherine O'Hara and Forrest Whitaker. So those are my honorable mentions. Jordan, I'm so glad you included Little Miss Sunshine on your
2: list. I was really hoping that movie would get included here somewhere, mostly because I was feeling really guilty. I didn't put it on any of mine. Um, That's, as the years go on, I remember seeing that the first time and thinking, like, and maybe because it got, like, it hit that Zeitgeist so perfectly, but I remember thinking, like, oh, yeah, I mean, this is a good movie, but it's, you know, it's like the the perfect indie movie, whatever. And the more I look back, the more I'm like, no, it actually is the perfect version of what it's trying to be. if I have any criteria for judging a good movie or a good piece of any kind of storytelling, it's trying to guess how much I think that movie achieves what it sets out to. You know, how much of it, how much does it accomplish what I think that movie is trying to do? And that movie is basically 100%. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine is a tremendous screenplay populated with tremendous performances. You couldn't have chosen better. And now I'm really frightened to see what's on your top five.
1: Like you said, Gabe, it's one of those films when I watched the first time and, and just thought like, this is... This is a really, really excellent film. And, and, and part I thought that might have had something to do with the fact that I identified a little bit with Paul, Paul Dano, um, also being colored colorblind myself. Nice to see that, that film representation. A great all-around film, great score, great soundtrack, too. Also was my introduction to Sufjan Stevens, a film that I haven't watched in years, actually. And I think I will I think I'll be making a point to do that this weekend.
3: I also really like that movie and it was disappointed to find it on the outside of my time frame looking in. You mentioned the great performances. Uh, the, there's only one that you omitted and that's Toni Collette. And she is just tremendous basically in everything that she, that she does. Uh, she goes all in on all of her roles and, and this film is no
1: exception whatsoever. She is tremendous in this movie. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you added that. that. That's definitely a fantastic performance that I omitted in and 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 you know dan coming through with the uh, uh, adding adding to the podcast excellent work dan again with the chicken so
0: it's time to award the point now that we've all gone through our honorable mentions for this one point question i really don't know what parameters to use to award this point um so I guess oh, I'll just... talk
3: it through, talk, 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 it through. Cause we have not, so been, for the listening audience, like we're, we are flying blind as the audience is. So take us through your thought process here. Is it just the guy who picked the movies you like the best? Is it the guy who defended his movie choices? Is it the guy who provided supplemental information on another guy's pick? I'm, I'm curious. The people want to know.
1: May I suggest Josh that you check your Venmo? <laughs> it would be my wife's Venmo.
0: Uh, is where so you'd millen- want to make so- your deposits.
3: Josh said we're tagged with the millennial tag, and that's so millennial of you to throw that out there. Also, so-
0: very
2: hard to have the wife uh, in control of the Venmo. <laughs> I want her to know I said that.
0: <laughs> so, I guarantee you she won't be listening this far into this podcast. <laughs> as soon as I mention Rounders, she'll turn it off. She loves that movie. So, I'll run through the selections one more time. Dan, LA Confidential, Office Space, Fellowship of the Ring. That's probably, probably, that's definitely the group of movies that I like the best other than my own. Uh, I had Rounders, Snatch, and Ocean's Eleven. Gabe had The Departed, District 9, and Scott Pilgrim Versus the World. Jordan had Little Miss Sunshine, An Education, and Where the Wild Things Are. I'm going to give this point to Jordan. Little Miss Sunshine was a delightful movie that that I really enjoyed uh, when it first came out too. And like Jordan, I haven't watched it in years. And after talking about it, kind of find myself wanting to go back and and watch it again. An education I have never seen, but I'm glad Jordan, you included Peter Skarsgård because I had to Google real quick which Skarsgård that was. And I was reminded of A performance of his in Jarhead that I saw, uh, which was a movie that I considered for this list, which I saw and liked in college, Uh, didn't end up on my list, but so you get some points for Peter Skarsgård, and because we read where the wild things are to our our kids uh, a lot these days. So Jordan, you get the one point.
1: That's fantastic. Let's all jump in our yellow van and let the wild rumpus start.
0: Dan, was was that enough enough detail for you? Do, do you think?
3: I love it. No, I I just you know I'm curious. I figure if I'm curious, I suspect the listening audience is is curious. But maybe I just think that they they care more than they actually do.
0: Well, I mean, you said you guys were flying by the seat of our pants. It's clear that the host is as well. So let's just jump right into the two point question. We're going to run through our top five, and we are going to go in reverse. Uh, rank order. So we're going to start with our fifth ranked movie. Dan's going to give his first, then me, then Gabe, then Jordan. And then we're all going to go run through and give four, three, and two. And we'll save the number one selection for the three-point question. So Dan, lead off, please. For two points, what is your fifth ranked movie from your generation? That's 1996 to 2004.
3: I'm going at the very beginning of my generation to 1996. I said in my honorable mentions that I thought, uh, or excuse me, my guilty pleasures, that I thought that this era was just riddled with outrageous action movies. And so what I did for my five movies was kind of broke them down into categories. So my entry into the outrageous action movie category, for me, my number five pick, is The Rock. It's Nicolas Cage at his outrageous best. It's Sean Connery in probably his last great role and last great movie. He had a few others after this, The Avengers, Entrapment. Finding Forrester has some uh, internal humor for us, but is not a movie that I think I've ever gone back and seen after we saw it in the theaters. Um, But Sean Connery is just He's sensational, but the supporting cast is pretty darn good, too. Ed Harris as General Frank Hummel, the kind of bad guy that you, I mean, he's a quote-unquote bad guy, but you can kind of empathize with him. You understand, you get to know why he's doing what he's doing. John Spencer as FBI Director Womack, he is basically every bit of shady that you believe the FBI is actually up to right now. The action sequences are tremendous. Uh, The score, Hans Zimmer had a hand in it, so you know that's going to be tremendous. And this, quite frankly, was back in the day when Michael Bay knew how to make good action movies. Unfortunately, that time has passed, but in 1996, he made a hell of a movie in The Rock. And so for me, it's my number five
0: Why am I not surprised? This is a, a great movie. I, oh, I love
3: bowling it. Arm.
0: <laughs> I hope you're insured. <laughs> uh, the rest of you better be insured. You're going to have a hard time uh, beating Dan after that selection. I'm going to move it right along to my number five ranked movie. Uh, and this isn't to butter anyone up in any way. As Dan said earlier, this is just a delightful movie that I legitimately enjoy. And it's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. I was taken to see this movie by a friend in high school in 2001, knowing zero about Lord of the Rings. And I watched this movie with my jaw to the floor the whole time. I, the whole universe that Tolkien created and that Peter Jackson put on the screen was, was magical. And I, the moment of Gandalf's, what I thought then was Gandalf's sacrifice was earth shattering cinematic moment uh, for me at that time. Uh, as Dan said, the score, Howard Shore, it does an unbelievable job. That's a score that I put on at least once a week while I'm working. It takes you in so many different places. I think in the soundtrack pod, Gabe, you said that it sounded like Howard Shore pulled it directly out of Middle Earth. What a great description of of that score. But you also have Ian Holm, one of my personal favorite actors, turning in a great performance. Ian McKellen, as I said, with Gandalf is tremendous sean bean is outstanding vigo mortensen uh, elijah wood and sean astin and the rest of the hobbits are tremendous this is just an outstanding movie and i absolutely love it
1: the emotion in that scene directly following gandalf's death is is
0: and the music at that point too is is what kills me
2: josh you're a cousin and like a brother to me but i don't know if i've ever loved you more
0: not even when I chipped in on number nine in the domino cup and like, uh, <laughs> oh, no. No, you're
2: right. This is 2017,
0: this is silver, something like that.
2: Right. No, this is silver medal to that moment. That's a very, <laughs> that's a very good point. And I don't know how I forgot. No, I mean, you guys are spot on. The, the music in that moment, it, you know, penetrates my soul to this day. Um, Howard Shore's work in general, it, it's, um, it's phenomenal. But yeah, that movie as stated earlier um, is the best of the lot. And for me, it, it's my favorite movie of all time. So I'm for someone who, it, for whom it was not eligible to be on their list. And I, I didn't, you know, it being a franchise movie, I was maybe too stringent in my application of the rules. And I wouldn't, I guess, have even considered it, but overjoyed to have it on here and, uh, and to see it being, to see it resonating so strongly.
0: And oh my goodness, how could I forget my, my, my soul brother, John Rice Davies, it, as Gimli is unbelievable in this movie. I, I'm, I'm not going to do any singing on, on this one. But uh, holy cow, is Gimli a tremendous character.
2: Yeah. And, and it's um, remarkable, too, when you consider that, like, it's always John Rhys-Davies, even though on screen it's not always John Rhys-Davies. It is a whole character that they make out of some great movie trickery. And John Rhys-Davies makes the absolute most out of the moments he has. And that's why he makes the impact he does. Nobody tosses a dwarf. You know, you, you, not so lightly do we toss that aside.
0: And let's toss it to you, Gabe. What's your number five?
2: Yeah, my number five, um, not to dawdle any longer, uh, sorry, is thousand WALL-E. Arguably, maybe, you know, d- depending on people, and this just speaks to Pixar's, the strength of Pixar's output, particularly in in, in the years we're talking about, um, it may not even be Pixar's best movie, but it's my favorite. It's, I, I think the the way that it opens with about half an hour of absolutely no dialogue, and it doesn't matter. You are engaged from the get-go at this adorable little robot who is still just doing his job, but has this quirk, you know, sort of, you know, like other um, androids we may have spoken of on this podcast before, you know, they have that quirk of humanity to them where he collects things he thinks are fascinating. He has an obsession with this selection from Hello Dolly. And then eventually he meets another robot for whom he you know feels an instant connection and attraction. And then it's the story of humanity learning, you know, who have grown into literal babies at this point, learning to actually walk again, to reclaim what it is we can do, having given it all up to, you know, the fruits of our genius for so long. I mean, that's the thing about Wally. It is a relentlessly entertaining film um, from Andrew Stanton, the director, um, and uh, somebody I want to make note of uh, to make sure I get it right. This guy, Jim Reardon, who was also the writer along with Andrew Stanton, who was also a writer for The Simpsons and Tiny Toons and has a lot of accolades when it comes. There was a a particular animation legend called him the best cartoon writer in the business. And this guy, Jim Reeder, also served as storyboard supervisor. And storyboard supervisor on this movie uh, is no joke. It has double the typical, as I understand it, even for a Pixar movie, storyboards as necessary. It was something like 120,000 plus individual storyboards to do this. And it shows, that's the thing. The work, this world is, is so fully realized and the concept so simple of something we created teaching us to be human again. It uh, it brings a tear to me eye, and it's just you know a little kid's cartoon. I think Wally uh, will absolutely stand the test of time, and it's a tremendous score from Thomas Newman.
3: You're absolutely right, Gabe. Standing the test of time, I mean heck, it's it's talking about environmental issues that you know a decade later are, are still hugely prevalent. And you know, you make a point about you know it's Pixar. It's it's a little kid's film, and I think people think that animated movies are just made for kids. It, Pixar doesn't do that. Pixar makes movies that, yes, can be enjoyed by kids, but can be enjoyed by kids of all ages. And this is an incredibly thoughtful and poignant and beautiful little story um, between wall and Eva. I mean, it's, it's heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. It's beautiful. And you're right. I mean, the first 30 minutes, no dialogue, and yet you're, you're compelled, you're drawn into it. Uh, outside the years of my generation, but I'm glad it was in yours, and I'm glad it's included.
2: Of note too, even in our dorky um, oeuvre, is uh, that Ben Burt, who we've previously mentioned as a Star Wars sound designer, is not only the voice of Wally, but does all this great work on, on making this world come to life. Um, and yeah, the fact that, and and that's the thing: without all that dialogue, without real human characters, it has to really rely on the expressiveness of, yeah, the animation, but also the sound design to really. Uh, come to life and it, and it does and um, yeah great movie well done Pixar pretty much every time
0: we also forgot to mention last time that Ben Burt was the sound designer on Indiana Jones
2: good point those punching sound effects are legendary
0: I, ter- exactly what I was thinking of Jordan what's your number five
1: so I guess this is now becoming a Ben Burt and John Williams appreciation podcast.
0: Yeah. It's getting rather technical. I apologize.
1: Sorry. <laughs> yes, it right. um, so for my, for my number five selection, Josh, I think you're going to like this one. Not that I'm trying to butter you up or anything because it's a great film anyway, but I'm going to go with uh, from the Coen brothers, 2007, no country for old men. Um, you've got some real standout performances here. Uh, Javier Bardem, um, as, Anton, as Anton, I want to make sure I get the last name right, Sugar, or as Josh Brolin's character <laughs> believes it is that initially, um, Anton Sugar. <laughs> um, uh, but Josh Brolin as Llewellyn turns a great performance too. Um, Tommy Lee Jones as the sheriff is fantastic. Kelly McDonald as Carla Jean, Llewellyn's wife, is really, really fantastic. And, and, and too, when I was thinking about these movies, I was thinking about like, scenes that I remember from these films. And a few that I just wanna talk about, the hotel shootout and that scene is so haunting and so emblematic of so many of the things that that film does. You have the, the great moment as Anton is walking to the door and you just see his feet. And then he walks away so that Llewellyn thinks that he's going to be all right and then he comes back and it's all black and then you have the shot but the shot doesn't come through the door it just knocks the it knocks the door the door lock off and hits Llewellyn it it's just a, it, it's a great all all around scene the pharmacy explosion scene I think is just visually really really compelling and really great um, and then the discussion between Anton and Carla Jean at the end that scene between the two of them at the end when she, you know what she when she's you know telling She's telling him, you don't have to do this. When she knows full well what he is going to do, it's this really sad scene. Um, But it also speaks to the code that this character lives by. Even though he says earlier to Woody Woody Harrelson's character, if the road that you took or the rules that you follow took you here, were they worth it? Um, Or something to that effect. I think I'm butchering that line a little bit. Um, but, you know, just so many great performances, so many great scenes. So, number five selection 2007, No Country for Old Men.
0: You're right, Jay. I love this movie. And I'm glad you pointed out Kelly McDonald because she really pulls off this East Texas accent, which for an ordinary American actor, you might not think is that much of a stretch. But this is actually a Scottish actor who I knew from Train Spotting and uh, the Pixar crowd may know from Brave. I mean, this is mm-hmm. a big stretch for her and like you said she's tremendous uh, in in that movie my favorite character in that movie though is tommy lee jones like i, I remember seeing that movie in theaters and he's describing the dreams at the end and, and then i woke and, up and yeah and and, and that the, such a great line at the i end. know and the, the you know the the rube in the theater behind me says what is that how it ends and I was like, what movie are you watching, pal? Oh, I, yeah, I, you're, you're right, Jay. You may not have intended to butter me up. You You guys needed to come with some strong competition to compete with Dan's The Rock selection, and you did it. So now let's go back to Dan for his number four.
3: The number four entry for me is going to check my romantic comedy box because I feel like when you're talking about the movies of your generation, rom-coms are just part of maturation and are part of adolescence and so whether you want to admit it or not they need to be included and stop me if this sounds familiar for me josh i had it written down earlier Notting hill um this is the first romantic comedy that i ever remember really truly enjoying saw it in the theaters no doubt dragged by you know friend girls not not girlfriends because I don't know that any of us had those in high school. Maybe Jordan, because he was actually cool. But I definitely did not. So girls that were friends, uh, but did actually end up enjoying the the movie. Now, by all accounts, Hugh Grant is a real piece of work in real life. But in this particular role as William Thacker, he is tremendously delightful and and cute and just kind of a, a quirky little travel bookshop owner. And he seems like just the regular kind of hapless loser, right? He just seems like this kind of hapless, regular, average Joe loser, like the rest of us. And by God, he ends up with movie star Anna Scott played by Julia Roberts, who I normally don't like. And yet the interplay between the two of them is actually pretty good. Uh, Racy Fonz as the roommate spike is, is tremendous. And, yeah, I mean, you said it, Josh. you know, Hugh Grant's sort of lethargic British delivery is sort of hapless delivery, probably gets old after a little while, but this was new and it was fresh, and he came across as as cutesy and and kind of relatable and fun, and I really remember enjoying that movie. I've seen it within the last calendar year and enjoyed the heck out of it then, just as much as I always did. There's no way to me that I could put together a list of five movies of the my generation movies and not include a romantic comedy. And for me, the conversation begins and ends with Notting Hill.
0: Hugh Grant's friend group in that movie is, is so funny. I especially love, I, I, I can't remember the actor's name right now, but he's the sort of like stockbroker guy who is just such a dope and he's having this conversation with Adam Scott where he's like saying oh well what what, he doesn't realize who she is doesn't realize that she's a movie star oh what do you do oh I'm an actress oh good for you well you know what sort of stuff you know I hear that can be really hard financially and she's like oh no you know features movies oh good for you anything I may have heard of like you know what did you make on your last movie and she says some exorbitant amount of money and then he finally puts it together and realizes what a bozo he is
3: well because then he he goes back into the kitchen and they're like, we can't believe you came here with Anna Scott. And he's like, Anna, what? and He's like, he finally realizes, oh my God, I've just made a total fool out of myself. Is that not uh, Downton Abbey's own? That's what I was going to say.
0: I was, well, I I couldn't remember his name, but is that, isn't that Lord Grantham?
3: Yeah, it is Lord Grantham, Hugh Bonneville. Absolutely
0: nice job by him. And yeah, I I can't say it on this podcast, but Ray Siphons, oh my word, his line at the end of that movie after, um, after Hugh Grant explains why he turned down Adam Scott and the rest of his friends are are, are saying, Oh yeah, you you did the right thing. Oh yeah. You know, good good job standing up for yourself. And, And the roommate just puts it all into perfect perspective Difficult act to follow, but I'm going to endeavor to do just that with 2002's Catch Me If You Can, a Steven Spielberg uh, directed picture, another absolutely all star cast Leo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken. Gabe, I'm going to be counting on you for some voice work. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be from Catch Me If You Can, just conjure up something.
2: Where are you going tonight, Frank? (laughs) Where are you going?
0: A chilled salad fork dad uh, martin sheen and a- amy adams uh, definitely I-, I think her breakout role certainly the first time that, that i saw her she jumped off the screen this is a tremendous little cat and mouse game of, of a movie you know it's it's a heist and a chase but it's it's it, it Spielberg's, at, at not his most gritty, certainly. Um, it, it, it's an easy watch. It's a fun watch. John Williams puts together a tremendous score. Um, and the, the, the way the, that the movie ends, where it, with uh, Frank Abagnale and Carl Hanratty becoming friends and co-workers uh, is tremendously satisfying and doesn't feel cheesy because it's a true story. Um, so that is, again, one of the things I love about this movie.
2: Again, I'm so glad to hear another movie's inclusion on the list. It, Catch Me If You Can is, I think, one of Spielberg's most underrated gems. Um, it's one that even I consistently kind of forget he made when we, especially in our dorky circles. Um, and it's a an, a really interesting and different John Williams score. And again, another one in competition for maybe one of Leo's best. Um, and the inclusion of Tom Hanks is a gem. And uh, yeah, Christopher Walken is tremendous. And, and it is just such a delightful and well-plotted. Proceeding of a movie. I mean, the the cat and mouse game, as you describe it, yeah, is um, absolutely the highlight. And, and the way they relate to each other over time, the little quirks that they find out about each other, uh, you know, using comic book aliases to disguise their identities, and um, it, with the scene when Tom Hanks uh, confronts him at Christmas, right in in like the the printing press or the newspaper. I can't remember exactly. We're somewhere industrial at the end of that, um, and it's just kind of like it's time to come home, Frank. You know, the way they. The way he almost seems to care for him at the end, and then yeah, by the, they do. It's um, they made a musical about that too. Did you ever realize that?
0: I I, I had no idea. No.
2: Yeah, they made, a, they made I think it's it's not half bad. At least, there's at least one good song in there that I've heard from. I've not heard the entire thing, but um, I also need to go back and revisit this movie. So I'll probably do that. Then I'll talk about the musical to you.
0: So we'll connect. All right, Gabe, do your job. I'll buy you a good humor bar. What's your number four? Uh,
2: my number four is inception from christopher nolan this is perhaps a predictable um inclusion but i uh, i think this is actually a really important movie in a lot of ways because this is a movie that could only have been made by christopher nolan and i mean that in as on christopher nolan movies on multiple levels this is something that he got to do after the success of batman even after the massive success of the dark knight and the interesting thing you know they always say in hollywood you do one for them and one for you. You know, you do the business savvy picture that's going to make you a lot of money, and then you can do whatever artistic you know, poodoo that you want to put your mind to, and they're all happy with that. The thing is, when Christopher Nolan puts his mind to it, he is maybe, I said this about Edgar Wright earlier for Scott Pilgrim, but I think the real answer, the filmmaker of his generation may be Christopher Nolan, and it's because of a movie like Inception, which has a massive budget and a massive scale, and yet it's an original intellectual property it's an original ip it's not based on anything this is just something that's been floating around in christopher nolan's head it's kind of an encapsulation of a lot of things he likes to talk about it is a ridiculous cast if you're talking about all the people it's another leonardo dicaprio movie it's marion cotillard who turns in uh, something i think really memorable it's a great joseph gordon levitt turn it's a great tom hardy turn uh it's a great ellen page turn it's a great michael cain turn again because he's christopher nolan's good luck charm And if we ever have time on another podcast, I will take everybody directly through the theory I found once upon a time that I completely agree with that this movie is basically just a movie about making movies, specifically action movies, um, the way they break down the role of everybody in the heist and how that sort of conforms to movie making. However, the fact remains that even on the surface level, it's a really entertaining and inventive heist movie with some terrific action, some incredible set pieces. And what's more, um, the cinematographer, Wally Pfister, who had worked with Nolan a, hu- a number of times to this point, wins an Oscar for this movie. So many of this is, so much of this is practical effects. There's not as much CGI in this movie as you think it is. Sometimes it's as simple as you know bolting a camera to the floor of a set that actually rotates 360 degrees while the actors work their way choreographically around the room. Um, I think it's a striking achievement, and it's one that could only have been done by Christopher Nolan. Oh, not to mention, the incredible Hans Zimmer score for which he was also nominated for an oscar did not win it's okay he's got his for the lion king but inception is um i think unique it landed with a, a bang in the pop culture firmament and its mark is still felt
0: you mustn't be afraid to dream a bit bigger darling
2: and delightful pieces like that another step in the evolution of tom hardy i'll never turn tom
0: hardy is is so great in that movie the, the little yeah. part where he's talking to leo in the bar and leo's like are those those guys from the from these 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 guys who are after me and tom i'm just like don't know see if they start shooting <laughs> it's, yeah. Oh, yeah he's uh, th- that's my favorite nolan movie
2: Gabe. i always thought that was yeah. um, kind of and, and it's a good one um that to me always almost felt like tom hardy's bond audition especially considering his like snowmobile assault in the final act and yeah, even so, you know, there manages to be sort of an emotional kernel. They wrap all this around. I think this is maybe the perfect Christopher Nolan movie. Not my not my favorite, but it might be his his most pure.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of challenge anybody to accurately explain what is truly going on at the end of that movie. Uh, like specifically like starting at that like snowmobile part, Gabe, but just all the places that that movie takes you. Oh, oh.
2: We we got this now and I don't want to bore the viewers with it, but call
1: me later and we'll hash it out.
0: So next is Jordan. Number four.
1: So for my number four selection, it's going to be the first duplicate and that's going to be the 2008 Pixar film WALL-E. Now I'm not going to, I want to second everything that Gabe and Dan already said about WALL-E. They, they spoke um, directly and, and eloquently and, and right on the mark about all the great things about this film. A couple of things that I just wanted to add really, really quickly in terms of the topical nature of it, you guys covered a lot of things, but a couple of other things that this movie deals with uh, man's reliance on technology. You know, and something that we see now, especially in the midst of a pandemic, but then also issues with obesity. You know, this film tackles that head on. So I think those topical elements are really, really strong. The sound design of Wally is fantastic. You know, no more so than in the development between this relationship between Wally and Eva. Um, and the score, Thomas Newman, great. You know, just just an excellent, excellent work. Um, and and a couple, and one scene that I just wanted to point out: the scene that to me is most memorable. It's, it's the scene where um, Wally and Eva are really starting to build up that relationship between the two of them, even though, again, we can't, we can't hear them speaking to one another. And it's set to Le'Veon Rose by Louis Armstrong. And it's just, it's just this wonderful, beautiful song set to this desolate landscape that that you know Eva's trying to find some sort of life on and it ends you know as as Wally is the one that's protecting her and bringing bringing her to to his home into that into that like hangar hangar bay type thing and, and that's a great scene too because it speaks to the fact that Wally is the thing that we all need to do which is you know holding on to the past holding on to the things that make us human holding on to the things that allow us to live a sustainable life so you know it, it's, a, it's a beautiful film it's a fun film but it's an important film too. It's a film that um, speaks to what it means to be human. And, and for, that, for that reason has to belong on my, on my, on my list. I, I will third what you seconded what we first did. Yeah, I,
2: I agree completely. And, and um, that's a great scene to pull out. And something I think people don't often think about is there is still, like it might be a computer generated movie, but you still have to place the camera. Like that's still a function of the filmmaking. You know, you're not just creating a full digital environment and then throwing a camera around in their virtual reality style. I mean, they collaborated with guys like Roger Deakins, who's a, a famous cinematographer to, to get the look right on, um, on like what kind of a lens we're trying to emulate, what kind of a film stock and grain. Uh, they ended up going with kind of like a really shallow focus that really brings the characters into that much sharper relief. And again, when you're reliant, when a movie that's so reliant on visual communication, like you're saying, Jordan, um, to convey meaning, when we can hear sounds and we can hear tone, but we don't know what they're saying, every little bit of communication matters. Uh, You know, it's an incredibly well-constructed film.
1: But it speaks to what you're saying, Gabe, the, the, the thoughtfulness of that film goes all the way down to the sound design and the visual design, uh-huh. um, you know, especially put in stark contrast to, you know, films that we may have discussed a couple of weeks ago, like the Star Wars prequels that, that weren't necessarily as thoughtful in their, in their visual display.
0: Well, Dirk, we're halfway home through this two-point question. Dan, what's your number three?
1: i going to
3: keep the Pixar train rolling and not with WALL-E uh, because within my top five, I needed to check the animated box somewhere. Uh, so many animated movies, a big part of my generation, I think. Um, so my number three film, I thought about The Incredibles. I thought about Monsters, Inc., but I'm going with 1999's Toy Story 2. Now, sequels are usually a train wreck just generally speaking. Animated sequels usually are straight-to-VHS or straight-to-DVD releases. This movie is every bit the equal of its predecessor. The gang is all back. Woody, Buzz, Rex, Mr. Potato Head, Slinky Dog, you name it. But then they introduce a number of new characters who are equally as delightful and lovable as our original. Whether it's Jesse or Bullseye, Mrs. Potato Head is phenomenal. And then you've got Stinky Pete, the prospector, who ends up kind of being the bad guy. You've got the skeevy toy collector played beautifully by Wayne Knight. Newman! Newman! And who who doesn't love the scene with Jerry, the toy repairman, when he gets Woody in the little chair and he spruces them all up to get them all looking good. I remember seeing this movie in the theater, with my friends, I remember laughing out loud, like falling out of my chair, laughing so hard at the scene when the gang dons the construction cones to try and cross the road in search of Woody, who's been kidnapped, and I still laugh out loud every time I see that movie. It is fun, it is delightful, like I said, I mean, I love Toy Story, and I love Toy Story 2 just as much. I am a huge Disney Pixar fan. Um, I, like I said, I gave a lot of thought to putting The Incredibles or Monsters, Inc. on this list, but at the end of the day, I went with Toy Story 2 because I think it is right up there with among my favorite animated movies of all time.
0: Dan, you're so right that it's right up there with the the, the original Toy Story, and just what a rare accomplishment that is, the thing that stands out to me about those movies is the voice actors that they get to chip in. Kelsey Grammer as uh, Stinky Pete. And I mean, we, we watched this movie with our kids not that long ago, my, my wife and I, and I had completely forgotten that it was Wayne Knight as, as, as the toy collector. And I was off the couch laughing at, at him. I mean, that is just a tremendously funny movie.
3: He's got the toy barn, right?
0: Al's Toy Barn.
3: Al's (laughs) Toy Barn, that's right. You're going to make big buck, buck, bucks.
0: (laughs) And then at the end when he's broke everything for a (laughs) buck, buck, buck.
2: The the, the huge strength of that movie is how they deepen Woody's world. I mean, you guys are right. It's the characters of Toy Story that keep it soaring.
0: So I'll go ahead with my number three, and that's going to be 1998's The Big Lebowski, uh, Cohen second Cohen Brothers reference uh, so far on the podcast. Uh, it's Jeff Bridges, it's John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, Julianne Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman in a delightful, you know, straight guy role. John Turturro in an iconic, you know, 45 seconds of screen time. I mean, this movie is Jeff Bridges invent you know we, along with the the cohen's inventing this character and i don't know what more needs to be said other than the dude abides i mean this movie inhabited a whole personality for me at several points during my life which may have been a, a bit destructive however uh the, the movie is still delightful and and it's just like a really good film um You know, the Coen brothers are outstanding filmmakers They make a ton of great choices in here, but it's just so, so entertaining.
3: I had jotted down seven movies that I thought were very likely to appear on Josh's list. This was the very first one that I jotted down. This was, to me, the gimme. I knew Josh was gonna include it. It was just a matter of where, and the why he included it is all the reasons that you said. The movie is just tremendous. It's fun. It's well cast. It's well acted. And you summed it up right there. In those three words, the dude abides.
0: All right, Gabe, you're a freemoth. I'm a freemouth. That's outstanding. But I am very busy as I imagine you are. What's your number three?
2: Well, that's like your opinion, man. And I I only say that with tongue planted only halfway in cheek because I'm going to continue the Coen Brothers Appreciation Podcast here. And I'm going to tip the cap back to Jordan uh, and repeat that my number three is No Country for Old Men, which I think if the Big Lebowski is kind of like the Coen Brothers to that point, to this point, to the No Country for Old Men point, had made kind of a certain kind of movie for a little while. You've got Blood Simple. You've got Fargo. These are kind of quirky or, you know, dark crime movies. Um, but they also have a unique sense Miller's of- Crossing, too. Miller's Crossing, thank you. Um, and through stuff like Raising Arizona and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, The Big Lebowski and a whole host of things besides, uh, there's one in particular, Barton Fink, there is a kind of humor and askew look at the world that's also on display. And by the time you get to 2007's No Country for Old Men, you have a couple of filmmakers who are at the top of their craft, who sort of for the first time are adapting directly another another work Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men the novel and uh while I confess I have not read the novel um I understand it's a pretty close adaptation and only to the point that thematically this movie is so strong um and it fits still alongside you know within the Coen Brothers filmography you, you, you can see they've got you know in um what's the other one with Nicolas Cage there is Raising Arizona but isn't there another one with death on a motorbike Ghost Rider. <laughs> okay, so yes, but that's not a cohen <laughs> Brothers movie. Um, never mind. It's there's a whole anyway. You've got Javier Bardem playing some sort of fate, you know, in in Anton sugar as as noted, um, and yet he himself meets a fate. And you've got Ed Tom Bell, uh, Tommy Lee Jones on sort of the other side of the moral spectrum, who's really trying to make sense of what this world is now. And right in the middle, you've got Josh Brolin's Llewellyn Moss who I think is an incredibly compelling character. And I, I never really, I hadn't seen Goonies. I didn't know who Josh Brolin was before this movie. And as great as Javier Bardem is in this movie, and he is, I mean, he won Best Actor, or Best Supporting Actor, I'm sorry for that. It's anchored by Josh Brolin's quiet, reserved, like kind of John Wayne-esque work um, as Llewellyn Moss and the way he qu- calmly approaches situations, lets things happen, observes, plans, I mean, there are entire sequences in this movie built almost entirely out of silence, and they're some of the most tense scenes I've ever seen in cinema. Jordan, you talked about the, uh, the hotel fight. I'm thinking, too, of... Uh, well, okay, were you thinking of the strip hotel fight or the one where... Uh, I, I
1: believe I'm thinking of the strip hotel, which, which was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that and one, that, that they, one's definitely yeah, the, the visually darker one. Yeah, it definitely
2: is. Um, and the fact fe- he takes off his shoes, um, Javier Bardem does. So, you know, you can't hear him coming. He's got the air gun and yeah, the thing jets across and you've got the, the bit earlier about how Josh Brolin uses the air ducts to pull the money around. And, and it's a, it's a movie about morals and choices and about how much fate has to do um, with things against the fate, you know, in the face of action. And um, it asks some tough questions and it doesn't give up its answers easy sometimes and it's also basically a, a perfect technical film it's shot beautifully it, it, it it's a it's really tough to sing enough praises about this movie really once you've done watch it it' sit it' sat in my head for a long time
1: the dialogue in that movie gets me too so much um, the uh, anton's final line to to Llewellyn's to Carla Jean the, about about the the coin, the coin got here the same way I did. Yeah. I, and, 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 it, and it's so on point for his character because it speaks to like this lack of recognition for humanity that he, had, that he has, which extends to his own humanity. That it, it, like it's just, he's no different than that quarter. That, that they both ended up there the same way. And also a film that is so thematically dark and also visually dark, which, which typically irritates me in films, but doesn't do so with this one.
2: I mean, it's, um, it's, a, uh, it's a Roger Deakins movie. The man knows how to play with light as far as the, the cinematography goes. This guy, um, I, I'm not even going to say what else he's, he's um, shot right now. Go ahead and Google it and then you'll, you'll see. He's, um, he's an incredible uh, artist of his craft. And it, it's a movie that's really not afraid to take its time. It's a movie that's not afraid to let the moment linger. It's, it's, it's really well-made.
0: Yeah, and Jay, with the darkness, you really do get respites from it also, Um, thematically when you're with uh, Ed Ed Tom Bell, the Tommy Lee Jones character, but also you get these exterior shots in the daytime, which are almost too bright at times, and it reminded me of the sort of respite that the Coen brothers give you in Fargo with Francis McDormand's character, um, and the, and her sort of familial relationship, and and she's expecting a child, and then there's all this all her dark stuff going on. But then we'll give you this scene of them two in bed talking about making eggs. but um,
1: well, uh, And and in terms of those respites, Josh, I'm also thinking of the scene when Woody Harrelson's character and Josh Brolin's character first meet, where you know he it, it it's an interior scene and it's brighter, but then. Harrison is also carrying flowers, so you know it, it, it's, it's that it's yeah, good point. that that contrast that's created throughout the film is 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 really just magnificent. So Jay, what's number three for you? So number three is going to be the, sef- the second uh, Steven Spielberg selection, um, and this is you know maybe a bit of a chalk pick, but it, it, but it it deserves to be on here, and th- and it's Lincoln, um, 2012. This is the film that snuck in there during my graduate year, so. Um, you know, I'm still paying off those student loans, but maybe this makes it worth it. Uh, but you know, stand-up performances obviously begin with Dan, with Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln. Um, very few people could have done it, and and he did it, and and he and he it, he embodied the man. Um, and, and and along with that too, if you're gonna play Lincoln, you know that the dialogue is gonna be a strong point of this film. But in connection with that too. A really something that I really really love about this film is John Williams and the subtle music that he uses to sort of uplift that dialogue. It's it, it's not it's not a very loud John Williams. It's obviously not a fanfare John Williams, but but it's there and it's just kind of holding up the dialogue because he realized that you know. With the eloquence of these words, that's all that he needs to do. Um, a couple of other standout performances: Tommy Lee Jones with, with with two performances in my top five. Who would have seen that coming? As Thaddeus Stevens, just phenomenal. Some some really great. Um, some really great scenes of of him just dropping insults one of my favorite was when he's when he's talking to Mr. Wood he, he refers to him as you, you perfectly named brainless obstructive object which is just and 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 the um the accent that he uses is just is so fantastic with that and in terms of great scenes give me anything with Sally Field Sally Field is Mary Todd Lincoln you know Mary Todd Lincoln was the, the first first wife, really, um, in terms of you know, first wife who was, was her own person um and and she embodied that role the first time that you see tommy lee jones and sally field interact as mary todd lincoln and thaddeus stevens you can see that she's not going to back 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 down one in in fact in in fact she's going to go right up to him so give me anything with her and and she also does a really really nice job of playing the playing to the, the emotional struggle that she was going through in that time with the, with, with, with the family situation that they were going through in that time. So uh, Sally Field, uh, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis was fantastic as Lincoln, but Sally Field might have been just slightly better as Mary Todd Lincoln. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean,
2: everybody looks at Daniel Day-Lewis in a scene, but if there are other actors, they have to go toe-to-toe with Daniel Day-Lewis you're not going to be bad at your job if you're there in the first place. And yeah, no, Sally Field was great in that movie. Um, and this being the 2012 inclusion, that's a great surprise and um, a worthy one for sure. Yeah, this is um, to Tommy Lee Jones's point. I remember seeing a preview for this and thinking like, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to take Tommy Lee Jones in this wig seriously. And by the end of the day, it was fine. I mean, it, it's the strength of the performances. It's the it's the strength of the movie and it's I think an interesting, unlikely one for Spielberg, and it's a phenomenal, extravagant. It's not quite an extravagant event. I mean, I don't quite know what to call it. It's, it's awesome. <laughs>
1: Well, and, and two, you know, going back to Tommy Lee Jones, one of the things that I found interesting in just doing a little bit of research the past couple of days was that a lot of those great one-liners are things that Thaddeus Stevens actually said. So it was yeah. all, it was on a, in all of his acting with it too. And one of the scene, just to touch on really, really quickly with that, the, the, the final scene where Lincoln is, is riding to meet up with, with Grant, um, you have this, the, this haunting moment as he's riding through the battlefields. Um, and what I love about that scene is actually in the conversation that he's having with Grant directly afterwards, he says to him that something along the lines of, you know, what I've seen here today, I've never seen before. And that line's great, but what's the best part of that line is the extended pause that he gives right before it. There's a good four or five seconds of just silence leading up to that. And you, and you can almost see Daniel Day Lewis thinking through, like, he's processing it. Um, so it, it just, really really fantastic
2: the screenplay that's getting so much credit here i want to note is by tony kushner who um yeah as noted does just a bang up job capturing historical items capturing the the character and occasionally sometimes maybe the the legend rather than the truth of some of who these characters are and sometimes maybe that's
3: better
0: dan what's your number two
3: Well, Jordan and Gabe just continue to throw really thoughtful, well-constructed, Academy Award-winning movies out there. No Country for Old Men, WALL-E, Lincoln, Inception. My entries so far, The Rock, Notting Hill, and Toy Story 2. And I'm going to keep the loose vibes going here with just a really cool, fun movie and one that Josh has already mentioned. And for me, the number two entry is Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Josh already talked about just the tremendous cast. The cast alone would be enough to have this movie included in your top five. But for me, I distinctly remember going to see this movie in the theaters when it first came out. There was obviously a lot of hoopla surrounding it because of the cast. And so you're going for that, right? You're going for the marquee names, Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Julia Roberts and Andy Garcia and Matt Damon and so on and so forth. And what I didn't know I was going for was just a well-crafted caper movie with heists and twists and turns. And every time you think, oh geez, these these guys, they've got it all figured out. And the plan seems to go awry almost instantly. Except what you come to learn is that the plan never really went went awry. But they had everything thought out and everything went according to plan. And at the end of the day, you're the one that was left wondering what was gonna happen. These guys had it under control all all along. And so for as cool and calm and suave as they appeared, that was the reality for these characters. It's just a fun movie. The performances are fun. You have a lot of fun watching this movie. You get the impression I had a lot of fun making this movie. Unfortunately, it spawned two totally mediocre sequels. In fact, for me, the best thing that came after Ocean's Eleven was the recent oceans eight spinoff i think that's the best that's come since oceans yeah, 11 but to sure me so. you go back to the original oceans 11 uh, it was the kind of movie you know one of those first movies that i remember seeing as a late teenager early adult and you're watching it and you think you know what's going to happen and you get to the end of it and you're like well, i didn't see any of that coming at all i i I, I thought I was pretty good at watching movies and picking up on clues and I didn't get about half of that. And it made me start to watch movies in a different way, but also in a way that just made me have a lot of fun watching movies. So I think it's a smart, fun, suave, classy, smooth, well-constructed movie. And so that's why it's number two on my list.
0: Yeah. And the, the, the coolness of all these characters I think contributes to that Dan is that like through much of the movie you're you're just busy looking at brad pitt and matt damon and julia roberts and as much as you might be thinking that like oh yeah i'm picking up on this and i'm picking up on that like you're clearly just distracted by how cool these people are that that you're not picking up on some of the clues that they do give you upon rewatch that like that that you know there's one uh particular line I'm thinking about where ah, some someone asks George Clooney if the the bank vault that they're building is for practice and George Clooney says something like that and that's like no it's not for practice we are actually going to use this a tremendous caper movie as you said Dan a, a tremendous plot and scheme that you know definitely w- was one of the first movies that for me as a young adult was this kind of movie that wasn't my dad sitting me down and saying, you have to watch the sting because it's this type of movie. And so you're kind of prepared for it. It was that organic experience, which made it all the more fun.
1: In terms of great performances too. Also got to mention the late Bernie Mac who, you know, up until that point. um, And I, and I'm blanking on the TV show that he shared that, that he, that he starred in, but, but that, that was really my only, uh, my only recognition of him, but just a just a phenomenal performance by him as well.
2: Wasn't the TV show he starred in called the Bernie Mac Show?
1: I think you probably <laughs> yeah, <I> think <laughs> you're right. it was.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whoops! That, that was totally a Dan move right there. Um, but Josh, Josh, you're right. I mean the the rewatchability of this movie huge points in its favor because you can watch this movie a half dozen or a dozen times and pick up something new each and every time. But you're right. The one thing that you are going to pick up on each and every time that you watch it, and I am very comfortable in my own skin saying this, that as I watch this movie, I am completely distracted by how beautiful Brad Pitt and how beautiful George Clooney look in a tuxedo or suit, respectively, because for all the times that I have tried to look that good in a suit and or tuxedo, I never come anywhere close. But I keep watching that movie and keep thinking maybe one day that could be.
0: Yeah, I, I often more end up looking like I rated Ted Nugent's wardrobe. Um, uh, so I'm going to move on to my number two, and it's the Wes Anderson movie that I chose to put in my top five. I forced myself to own, to choose one, and I'm choosing 1998's Rushmore. I had to choose one where Bill Murray played a, a, a prominent role. He is probably my favorite actor, certainly my favorite comedic actor, Bill Murray as Herman Bloom is tremendous in this movie. I just watched it again last night and he just makes me laugh so much. All the little choices, all the little things that he chooses to do in this movie where he's like on his cell phone. This is an early days of cell phone, having a conversation with Max Fisher, walking through the school playground as a bunch of like elementary schoolers are playing basketball. And he runs up and blocks one of their shots just for fun. Um, So, I mean, so the Bill Murray performance period, but the the soundtrack and the score, we talk about, we've said this a few times on this podcast so far, soundtrack and score. This is uh, Mark Mothersbaugh's score, but there's also a lot of music placement by Wes Anderson, and I'm sure the musical supervisor whose name escapes me at, at the moment. And that is done so well in this movie, no better than in the, the final scene with Ooh La La by the Faces. It was the first time I'd ever heard that song. It's a movie that keeps me coming back. I, I, I As I said, I watched it last night. And when I went upstairs, my wife said, what was that movie that was making you laugh? That, you know, After all these years and all these viewings, it's still making me laugh out loud.
2: And that's a filmmaker, Wes Anderson, who I admit I didn't even really consider. And I'm looking back at my filmography right now and, while he's made some great movies, I think I'm safe in my own category, but I'm glad he's represented because he's tremendous. And I confess, I don't know Rushmore that well. I'm, based on the strength of your recommendation, I'm going to have to go, go check it out now, especially for Bill Murray, who again, yeah, is a treasure. And that's also Jason Schwartzman. And um,
0: yeah, he plays the the, the nerdy uh, Max Fisher and he's outstanding. Uh, Olivia Williams gives a great performance uh, as the, the, Elementary school teacher that he's infatuated with. Brian Cox has a great oh. has a great little role as the curbudgeonly school uh, headmaster. Seymour Cassell as as Max's uh, dad has a couple of really funny lines. Uh, Max, in trying to, he goes to this uh, prestigious private school and he's trying to play his dad up, and he he says that he's uh, so he tells people that his dad is a brain surgeon when in fact he's a barber. And at the end of the movie, um, one, one of the people that Max tells this to runs into Seymour Cassell and he says, oh, I, I hear I hear, you're a brain surgeon. And Seymour Cassell just deadpans like, no, I'm a barber. But a lot of people make that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> T- terrific dialogue. Gabe, what's your number two?
2: Uh, my number two, um, I'm going to do a repeat filmmaker for me. And um, my number two is going to be The Prestige. From 2006, uh, another Christopher Nolan movie. I I struggled in my top five to sort of hit the difference between movies that I thought deserved inclusion on a kind of my generational type list, as we're talking about here, and movies that you know were just sort of my personal favorites. And The Prestige splits the difference, I think, very neatly down the middle. Um, I still think this might be my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. I have a huge soft spot for Interstellar that falls outside my. You know, year yearly purview here. Um, And yeah, Inception, I think, may be the best Christopher Nolan movie, but it may not be my favorite because that may be the prestige. Um, Just starting with cast. It's a phenomenal lineup. It's Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, Michael Caine, Scarlett Johansson, Andy Serkis, David Bowie, Rebecca Hall. Um, I mean, the, the list, I think, even can go on beyond that. And it's, uh, again, very emblematic of, um, and it's an early Nolan movie. And this is one that I think is really interesting that he makes at this point, because this is on the heels, or just after, rather, him making Batman Begins, which is a pretty big smash, which when you remember when Christopher Nolan makes that, Batman's kind of on the outs. The last movie we had was Batman and Robin, which we've talked about that. That wasn't that great. And Nolan reinvents it wildly and completely with Batman Begins by doing the innovative thing of taking the notion of Batman completely seriously. It's a smash. He gets to do whatever he wants. So Warner brothers is like, okay, go ahead. Uh, He takes a book by Christopher priest that he'd read and writes the screenplay with his brother, Jonathan Nolan, who also provided uh, the short story and some of the screenplay for Memento Christopher Nolan's breakout hit. And they, uh, and they start assembling this phenomenal array of people and start telling this awesome, intricate story about tricking the audience which the movie is doing to you from the outset I mean at the very beginning Michael Caine's John Cutter is telling you what the the prestige is you know there is the pledge there's the turn and there's the prestige I, I think that's what it is he's going to tell you you're going to he, uh, he's going to do a trick he's going to do the trick and turn something ordinary into the extraordinary and then you're going to never see you you know what comes at you after that and that's exactly what the movie does every time it's one of the uh, movies that I think best rewards Rewatching because there are so many intricately layered hints, some of which are obvious upon rewatching, and some of which are not. Um, but it's a tremendous turn from Christian Bale. Uh, I think a particularly tremendous turn from Hugh Jackman um, as Rupert Angier, who really taps into his showman side to bring this um, stage magician to life. And uh, I, I think it's a it's remarkable that could, having the ability to do anything he wants. Christopher Nolan tells this really Christopher Nolan tale about obsession, duality, um, reality, and uh, yeah, it's it's
3: tremendous. I I love that movie too, Gabe. It's it's beyond my years for this particular brief. Um, And and Lord knows, with your uh, film knowledge and acumen, you describe it a hell of a lot better than I ever could. But to me, it just strikes me as one of those thoughtful, thinking but cool movies like it's the movie that at the end you know magicians they they turn tricks right and at the end it's it's i gotcha and this That's movie is. yeah kind of movie gotcha big time definitely did. and and you're right um maybe even more rewarding on the rewatch than oceans 11 because you're right you pick up some of these little clues and you you learn little things but it's different things each and every time and and you said it. I mean, you know, Christian Bale is phenomenal. And, and I, I adore Hugh Jackman. I mean, I'll see anything that he's in. You mentioned his showman side. Uh, the Greatest Showman was not a good movie. But Hugh no. Jackman sure as heck is, is fun in it. He's tremendous in this. Michael Caine is phenomenal, as always. And um, it ends with a nice, cool, kind of lurking, creepy Tom York song at the end, in the end credits. So I'm, I'm all on board with that. That's, that's a great pick, Caine.
2: I think it's great that you mentioned Ocean's Eleven because I think that's exactly the point, actually. Because even in some of these shots we've discussed, the yeah, the something like that quote, the, there's that one focus shot on a, um, a car freshener that you later realize is taken from the inside of the SWAT van. It's hanging from that rearview mirror upon a rewatch. Steven Soderbergh in Ocean's Eleven is tricking you just as much as Christopher Nolan is telling you he's tricking you with the camera and perspective. And you know, with what you think is happening in the prestige, yeah, it's, it's um, I'm. Have I said too much? It's probably too much. I like this movie, you guys.
1: Jay,
0: bring us home for the two point question.
1: I, I will speak less than Gabe, though that is probably not something that comes as too much of a surprise. Not difficult either, yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's low hanging fruit. Um, but for my number two film, I'm going to go with the 2006 film. 2006 film that has already been mentioned, though not within the top five, it was mentioned as an honorable mention, and that would be Martin Scorsese's Departed. You know, we've talked several times tonight about soundtrack and score. You have Howard Shore, just an excellent, excellent score, and a, and a score that's kind of different for him. I, I Absolutely. Lord of the Rings notwithstanding, I think you have – his scores, I think, have a tendency to sound a little bit similar from one to the other, and this one is—it's it, it, very—it's it, almost salsa-like in some in some parts. Um, th- that is that—that's a soundtrack, or that's a score that I that I listen to at least once a year, um, to, all the way through. Just I, I just just adore it, um, and and a bunch of standout performances from actors that I wouldn't necessarily like in other films um not so much with these first couple ones that I'll mention but you have uh Matt Damon as Sullivan you have Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio as Billy Costigan I've already stated that I think that was the role that he should have won best actor for didn't but he you know got one after the fact thankfully um Jack Nicholson as Frank Costello is is perfect I mean it is it, just perfect um and then a couple other ones I love Mark Wahlberg in this as they, like like I think it's the perfect Mark Wahlberg role and I think he plays it perfectly I really really enjoy him this I really enjoy Alec Baldwin in this it's almost like a little bit of like 30 30 rock Alec Baldwin um Jack like a little bit of Jack Donaghy in there um and Ray yeah. Winston as Mr. French and 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 I'm I hope that I don't get her name wrong uh, Vera Fremija as as Madeline please yeah. correct me if I if I got the name wrong
2: I I don't know one way or another, um, unfortunately, but I agree with you that she is striking in this movie.
1: I think she's fantastic, and she's actually a part of what what is, for me, one of my favorite scenes in that film, too. Two scenes that I want to talk about real, real quickly. I'll get to the one that I just teased a second ago. I love the Frank Costello scene between him and Costigan, where he's starting to sniff out the rat, and he begins it by, like, making that rat-like face, which is just such yeah. a Jack Nicholson, Nicholson thing to do, and, like, he's the only actor that can get away with doing it doing it but he does it and works um that's a phenomenal scene and and for me the the scene that i really really love in that film is what i would consider like the end before the end which is the one where matt damon's character is in the shower and madeline is listening to the recording and it's this it's this great split between the two um we mentioned earlier that the rat scene at the end is is very much on point but very much over the top as well that scene that ending is just, it, it, it's so beautifully filmed back and forth. Um, j- just a film that that I really, really enjoy. And, and, I, and I started by talking about the score and the soundtrack, but I forgot to mention a couple of the great songs in there. You have some great um, Rolling Stone tracks, and then you also have, a, I believe, a live version of Comfortably Numb that's used yep. in there too, which is just phenomenal. That was the
2: first time uh, I'm ashamed or maybe happy to say, given the usage, because it's, it's spot on. Uh, I'd never heard Comfortably Numb before this movie, and I it out, um, not to mention more than a few Rolling Stones songs, because again, it's my first theatrical Scorsese movie, um, and it, it really wouldn't be a Scorsese movie without a little bit of Stones involved in there. Um, the music is great, the characters are great, the dialogue is great.
1: Wait, wait, a, wait a minute, Gabe. You're saying that 2006 was the first time that you ever heard the song Comfortably Numb? Unfortunately, yes
2: look i really like pink floyd now so like i've got several of their albums and i feel like i've made up for it but don't make me talk more about this deep dark secret i've
0: heretofore kept <laughs>
2: from you guys out of shame you, were 18. you were 18 i'm sorry
0: what
1: were you doing for
0: the past That's 17 not, years not quite a safe space on on dork fest the podcast but i think maybe we can agree to tuck that one away for later and 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 give Gabe his his full and true ribbing at a at a, at a later date. Uh, tremendous job, Ooh. Dork's a great collection of of movies that that we've assembled here. Really representative uh, of the era. Dan going with The Rock, Notting Hill, Toy Story Two, and Ocean's Eleven. Uh, myself uh, with. Fellowship of the Ring, Catch Me If You Can, Big Lebowski and Rushmore, Gabe, Wally, Inception, No Country for Old Men and The Prestige, Jordan, No Country for Old Men, little uh, lower than Gabe had it ranked, Wally, little higher than Gabe had it ranked, Lincoln and The Departed, and the two points here, uh, Dan, you may feel rather like Alchematus for not getting these two points, Uh, But they're going to go to Gabe, and it's for his hypothesis of Christopher Nolan as the filmmaker of our generation. I think if you take, like, from the time that we all first started going to the movie theater in the early 90s, uh, uh, up to now, Nolan's body of work as a a director and a filmmaker may stand above them all. So, Gabe, congratulations. You get the two points.
2: I do feel rather like Alchemy
0: or Sir Walter Raleigh.
2: Shamed fate. <laughs> Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for example.
0: He play hockey for the Red Wings.
2: Mm, that's the chap. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, I do have to, before we go any further, I'm so glad you included the rock. It's probably Michael Bay's best movie. It's certainly his best straight-up action movie. It's a it's Sean's last best action role. It's maybe my, it's maybe Nicolas Cage's best role. Ed Harris is a treasure. It's a tremendous Hans Zimmer collaboration. It's preposterous and it's perfect on every note.
3: Yeah. And I I had to include it when I realized it ended up in my, in my time window because Gabe, you talked about uh, the, the thought process behind how you selected. Did you go with sort of your favorite movies or movies that were important within that generation? And I leaned almost exclusively to the former. I just went with the movies that I enjoyed the most or just have the most fond memories associated with, or the movies that have kind of stuck, you know, stood the test of time. And The Rock is one that I continue to watch all these years later and enjoy just as much as ever as you guys do. And so I, I had to include it, even though it did not get me the two points.
0: Yeah. You look at each dork's group of films. I think someone, you know, they, just pull a random person off the street and make them watch these four movies i think they would have the most fun watching dan's movies uh the 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 rest of ours can can get a bit intense at times like i'm looking at jordan's list and uh, well i mean you gabe too i mean you both throw wally in there but no country for old men lincoln and the departed that's that that's some heavy stuff there jay
1: yeah, yeah, we throw Wally in there as like this is what you're gonna enjoy, but the rest of the stuff is, uh, yeah, we 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 want you to feel something. Yeah, we're gonna and, make and you it, think it's not too. Good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I will say with um with with Lincoln and and a little bit of a tease a film that we'll be hearing about from me in a second. Um, the the historical films, I think, I think are something that are difficult to do well, and when they are done well, it's just is a really sort of lasting film, at least in my eye. Totally agree, Jay.
3: I'm clearly just the funnest member of Dorkfest, the podcast. I think that's what we've decided.
0: Another take which our listeners can dispute. (laughs) So this is it. The moment we've all been waiting for. The number one movie from each of our generations. Again, we've defined this as the year we entered high school, more or less, to the year we graduated college. For Dan, 1996 to 2004. For myself, 1998 to 2006. Gabe, 2003 to 2011. And Jordan, 2004 to 2012. So Dan, start us out for three points. What is your favorite movie from your generation?
3: Released in 2002, The Born Identity. This is released the same year that Die Another Day was released which is a woefully disappointing James Bond movie. I remember coming back from college, this would be my sophomore year, and our dad told me, I saw this movie, The Born Identity. You gotta see this movie. This is what James Bond movies should be like. And this is the same guy who made us sit through movies like The Martian Chronicles, the Day of the Dolphin, certain films that like, so you're you're hearing this advice and you're taking it with several grains of salt. But well, you know what? The big guy was right because this movie is total mystery, it's intrigue, it's espionage, it's action. This movie is everything that James Bond movies should have been. And you know what? This movie is everything that James Bond movies came to be. The tight, tightly shot action sequences, the hand-to-hand combat displayed by Matt Damon, absolutely tremendous. Some great uh, performances throughout the cast, a tremendous soundtrack, a movie that keeps you guessing, a movie that's set up to very good sequels, the Jeremy Renner and then the Matt Damon reboot later on. Let's not really worry about those. But the initial Born Identity is a phenomenal movie. And the song that ends it, Extreme Ways by Moby, has been one of my favorite songs for the past 20 years, and its inclusion in this movie is why. So for me, I realize it may be a bit of a surprising selection at number one, but I love Matt Damon, I love spy and espionage and action movies, and so my number one movie from my generation is The born Identity.
0: It's not surprising to me at all, Dan, for two reasons. One, because I know you love it so much. And the other is that I seriously considered putting it on my list. And the primary reason why I didn't is because I knew that you would. And so I knew it would be represented. Everything you said, Dan, is spot on. Just want a quick mention my favorite scene from this movie is the the snowy field shootout between Matt Damon and Clive Owen, uh, you know, one of the climactic uh, action sequence of that movie uh, is is just so tremendous with with Damon uh, with just this shotgun that he, you know, even just the start of that scene where he deduces that this guy has a shotgun. And then he looks at the toys and thinks, okay, so the shotgun will be high above like a shelf or something because he won't want his kids to accidentally get the shotgun. And, and the way that he smokes out Clive Owen's character, uh, and and goes in for the kill, and then the little dialogue, the intimate dialogue that they have, um, and Clive Owens, you know, last words about the headaches that they get, uh, and it's 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 tremendous.
3: For a guy in Jason Bourne who throughout this movie has no idea who he is, he is instinctively in control of virtually every scene. He doesn't know where he's going or what he's doing, but in that moment. He knows exactly what to do, it seems, at every turn. And what makes the movie so enjoyable is you learn about him and you discover things about him with him. You're on this journey together. You start the movie not knowing anything about this guy. That's exactly where he is. So you're going on this journey together. Uh, Just a a hugely enjoyable movie. Uh, I I watch the trilogy probably every year, but that initial one stands out to me and I think what it did to set the stage for action movies that would come after it uh hugely important so again number one for me the born identity
1: that aspect of his character is so essential too because it's what humanizes him like everything else about the character is so inhuman it's so it's so unrelatable but that idea of discovering oneself is is intimately human and thus makes him a more relatable character this is all 100
2: percent right i i am um had considered including one or the other of the subsequent sequels um, of this franchise on my list. But again, it was a franchise. I wasn't certain about the rules. (laughs) So rather than ask, I just decided not to include them. So again, I'm glad the born identity has an inclusion um, because yeah, this was, as you suggest, Dan, a paradigm shift in action movies. Um, This directly impacts uh, this and its sequel, the born supremacy directly impacts what you compare the born identity to in the same year with Diner the day the future of the Bond franchise and Casino Royale. Casino Royale is a direct response to the Bourne franchise. Yeah, the, this is all the little intricate pieces. This was the, the thinking man's action movie. They called it From the Get-Go. And they found the perfect leading man in the moment in Matt Damon, um, who would tremendously grow into the role. And as good as this movie is, it's possible the sequels um, in, you know, mine and Geordie's timeline are better that said, um, the groundwork laid by this, by as what you guys suggest, this character who we kind of root for because he himself is—it's the classic audience surrogate role. He doesn't know who he is. We don't know who he is. We're going to follow him on this journey, and as it goes on, it—you know—the suggestion is greater and greater that maybe he wasn't that great a guy. And what the greatness of Jason Bourne is, his choice to then throw that all away and try and start over. Um, and the setup in this movie is, yeah, a tremendous launching pad for another couple of great movies after this, but it's great in its own right too.
0: So I'll use it as a launching pad into my number one, which is the year 2000s, Cameron Crowe written and directed Almost Famous. I am on record right from the top on this podcast that all the greatest music was made prior to 1976. This movie is an ode to that time and those bands uh, and the cast is simply tremendous. Kate Hudson as Penny Lane is one of my all-time favorite characters. Patrick Puget, Billy Crudup, Francis McDormand, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs in my all-time favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, performance. Uh, the the interview that he gives with the the local radio host where he's talking about the Doors and the Guess Who and Iggy Pop. Amen. Uh, it's, definitely one of my favorite scenes. Jason Lee in a in a sort of a new role for, for him but but also bringing the the life and energy and charisma that that he's well known for fitting perfectly into that that front man role. It, it was a movie that was made for a person with exactly my interests when i was a you know sophomore junior in high school and i just ate it up with a spoon and continue to to this day i absolutely adore this movie
3: i knew it all I can say is I knew it. I, there were two films, much yeah, like you. It, it shouldn't have been a, su- a surprise to no one. but no you're, no, you're correct. But the way you knew that I was going to include The Born Identity is the same way that I knew you were going to include Almost Famous. And for all the reasons that you mentioned, it is a hugely enjoyable movie. And it checks all of those classic rock boxes perfectly.
1: It goes without saying, but yet another great soundtrack in our, in our podcast tonight.
2: How could it not be, given everything that that movie deals with? But you know, man, that's a tremendous movie, regardless.
0: The tiny dancer scene, also one that is just, you know, you know, I, I, I guarantee you Cameron Crowe writing that scene was just like, I know this is gonna, uh, this is gonna rock, and and it surely did.
2: That's Billy Crudup in that movie, right? As one of the as the rocker, he's following. yeah, he's yeah, he.
0: Billy Crudup is the lead guitarist, and and the so and there's a sort of feud developing with Jason Lee, who's who's the lead singer, and then the you know the other two nobodies of the band, as so many of that era were.
2: Yeah. All right. I'm gonna have to go back to that movie.
0: I mean, obviously, it's my favorite movie from that era. It's a top five movie for me overall. I I, I strongly endorse it, Gabe. Um, and so, what's your number one?
2: Uh, my number one. Is going to be 2006's uh, Children of Men, uh, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Um, it's a screenplay by him and, and several others. It's based off a book by P.D. James, a uh, British novelist. Um, stars Clive Owen, Claire Hope, Achete, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine in a great role, Chai Wettel, for. I'm hoping I get that, got that name right. Charlie Hunnam is apparently in this movie also, just for side notes. But the thing that struck me, this movie has been a favorite of mine for, the long, for a, a long time part of something I've struggled with in this one is how I felt about a movie when I saw it in the moment, you know, as whatever age I was within my time limit and going back to it now or since um, and how it made me feel and what I thought of it then. And children of men is the only one that had not changed. In fact, I think it, my appreciation for this movie has only deepened. The movie takes place in 2027, November, if that matters when you open the movie and immediately it is recognizable in this year of 2020. I mean, this movie was made 12 years ago and it's incredibly prescient. Within 20 minutes, you're hearing about how every nation on earth has fallen because of this, um, the conceit of the movie is there's a, a collapse of human civilization that's basically imminent because there's been no new human child born for 18 years. At the start of the movie, the youngest person on earth has been murdered. There's no hope, everything's terrible. Uh, Clive Owen is one of the main is the main character here, and he, as he takes the tram to and from work, you see literal immigrants in cages. I mean, it's terrible imagery, but boy, in this year of 2020, does it not ring true? The climate is has changed. You know, you've got terroristic factions running. You know, various parts. You've got London gets bombed, or or part of I'm sorry, a part of the United Kingdom gets bombed at some point at the end. It, it's a really grounded, gritty, realistic feeling universe. And that's due to all the work that's done in the production design and um in part by uh the cinematography by Emmanuel Luzbecki, who is the only cinematographer to have won Best Cinematography, the Oscar, three years running, uh, for three different movies for Gravity, Birdman, and The Revenant. The first one with the same director, Alfonso Cuaron, and the next two with Alejandro Alejandro Inarritu. It's a striking movie. Uh, it, it's deep. There's a lot of layers to it. There's this documentary style to the cinematography, as I mentioned, that is incredibly striking and draws you directly into it. It's a hopeless world that ends on a hopeful note um, as you come to the climax. And it's uh, it's stuck with me and haunted me for a long time. And I have to give it the number one spot.
0: Striking is, is the perfect word to describe this movie, Gabe. The... What one of the, I guess it is the opening set of scenes and it, it it feels sort of monotonous as Clive Owen is getting a cup of coffee and on his way to work. And, but the surroundings are striking because it's this dystopian future, but then the explosion that, that, that rocks the start of that movie. And there's great evolution in Clive Owen's character, throughout where he ends up sacrificing himself for the cause of, of this woman who is actually pregnant and, uh, and trying to ferry her to safety. I agree with you a hundred percent, Gabe.
2: It's, it's just, you know, it's touching. There, there's so much to this movie upon rewatching. Um, and it, it really is incredible to watch now and again. And Michael Caine, um, you know, the role was, you know, not written much with, um, you know, him in, uh, in Prestige, the role of John Cutter was not written for him. It, you know, Nolan started making movies and Michael Caine happened to be there. And as with this, uh, Michael Caine apparently channels his friendship with none other than John Lennon to approach this role. And you see it in, in you know, the circular-shaped glasses and the um, cultivation of pipeweed, shall we say, as Gandalf <laughs> might might opine. But And it's it's just a really... It's a very human movie at the end of the day. Um, Never
0: knew John was that big on pull-my-finger jokes.
2: Right. And, you know, that's kind of another element to the the whole thing, really. Beatles and, uh, and Children of Men. It's a, it's a whole cycle that ends up in this tremendous movie.
0: Jordan, complete our cycle. What's your number one? Uh,
1: appropriate, too, that Gabe looks towards the future and looking at a dystopian for future because... To round out the top five, I'm going to be looking back to our past. I already mentioned my affinity for historical films who get it right when I was talking about Lincoln. And with that idea in mind, for my number one film, I'm going to go with Tom Hooper's The King's Speech, starring Colin Firth, who up until that point I had really just known from Love Actually, turns in an absolutely phenomenal role as King George VI, better known in the film as Bertie. Um, but then also you have Jeffrey Rush as Lionel um, and, and, and an actress who I had forgotten actually was in, the, was, was in the film until rewatching it recently, Helena Bonham Carter as Queen Elizabeth, who is, is, is just absolutely fantastic in that. And a couple of really, really great scenes in that film. Um, you have the first scene between Queen Elizabeth and Lionel and you know she's approaching him trying to get his services as a way to help her husband and she's very much playing up her royalty um, as a way to almost you know overpower him and and get him to submit and he submits only slightly to make sure that he's saying your highness but 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 he doesn't submit entirely so it's this great tête-à-tête between these two characters one of whom is royalty and the other of whom considers himself royalty in his field. The public speaking montage between Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth, I'm not a particular fan of montages, but this one, I think, does a really, really great job of actually delving deep into public speaking strategies. And and as a school teacher, this is something that I, that's a scene that I use at least every school year when we do public speaking. I, I go through this as a way to actually show students these are some actual ways that you can improve your public speaking techniques. I do skip over the uh, scene where he encourages him just to to curse all the time. That doesn't sit too well with parents, but, um, but, but nonetheless, you know, could be a good technique as well. A couple other great scenes, um, the nanny scene where Colin Firth is, 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 you know, sort of reminiscing or not reminiscing, but recollecting on the, 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 harsh experiences that he had as a child that led to the speech impediment that he's dealing with at the present. That's a really, really daunting, haunting scene. It's powerful too, because he's still forming that relationship with Lionel at that point. Um, and, and, it's, and it's a very much a scene in which he opens up to Lionel, perhaps for one of the first times. Two other scenes that I want to talk about really quick. The, there, there's this outdoor scene where Lionel first says to Bertie like you could be king. And what I love about this scene is that right after he says this, the camera switches angles so that it now appears that Bertie is 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 walking backwards. Um and, and it's just, it's just, just nice camera work that's kind of indicating the fact that 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 he's moving backwards in terms of his evolution as a character. And last but not least you have the actual king speech, the final scene. And what I love about it is that you have this famous speech that's told as an intimate conversation between people that have become friends. I mean, it's just such a beautiful scene between two actors that are that are that are really just living in that moment together. So, number one for me, the King speech. There's a lot of
2: merit to that, Jay. I mean, that that scene you you talk about here at the very end when what's the line that Jeffrey Rush and Jeffrey Rush is I think the Quicksilver in this movie. He's the thing that colin firth wins an oscar for this movie but it's jeffrey rush i think that really makes it work and gel like the whole idea of it when he says you know don't worry about that just say it to me yeah
0: that's gonna I'll say, say yeah. that's that's say the line that brings and, it for me
1: and and, and, the, and, the, and the camera work right after that too you have the you know he's the 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 microphone is between them and and right after he says just say it to me there's that like breathe like it, 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 it's it, it's it's such a i mean he, he's supporting it, it's such a it's a really beautiful human moment i like also um
2: guy pierce is his brother in that movie right yeah he's um it, just to call out another
1: actor that i like um very much who happens to slide by in here um great casting too as sort of a foil absolutely. to colin firth in that like it, it's it just, yeah just really really smart casting
2: and as you say, Helena Bonham Carter too. I mean, she always turns in something that is at the worst hugely reliable, and and she's clearly having fun being here in this one. I, I for whatever reason, I it always seemed to me that she this was a, a role she happily undertook, and it, it shows. And I, I think she's delightful in this.
1: And maybe the reason that I like her so much in that is that I think this was coming out right around the time that she would have been. That, that she would have been well known for her roles in Harry Potter as Bella, she's, she's, yeah, her Bella Strange. Strange. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, it, and it was so different from that, but yet still so hell in a bottom card. Like she's, you're so right, Gabe. I don't think there's anything that she's done that I haven't liked. She, she's just, just really a wonderful performer. Yeah. She's great.
0: You all are great too, dorks. I mean, this has been really fun to take this stroll down memory lane. I, I, I've, I've certainly enjoyed it now it's time I've got to I've got to give somebody three points for this final question and Gabe and Jordan I mean you really just you did really you did a really good job and 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 you made it interesting for the listeners but Dan comes from behind does it again the Born identity is the clincher he gets all three points he takes the lead and the win for the episode. I, 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 I admire the way Dan segmented his picks into different categories. I feel like that was a good way to do it. Uh, he also, uh, as I said, uh, assembled the most fun lineup, I think, of movies to watch. But really, this is, it, this is a first among equals situation. But Dan, I'm giving you the points and the victory.
3: I appreciate it very much, just solidifying my role as the most fun member of the Dorkfest podcast, albeit uh, none of my movies are winning Academy Awards or anything like that, but we've got a fun lineup from 1996 to 2004. It was a good year of movies, and boy, am I glad that uh, I elected for The Born Identity over 10 Things I Hate About You. Really good 50-50 call there at the end.
0: <laughs> you like, certainly saved yourself.
3: That's a good movie too, though. No, it's... It's a tremendous movie, yeah. It, it was in my rom-com conversation, but I, I elected to go with Nottingham.
2: Jordan, mm-hmm. that's based off Shakespeare.
1: It is, it is. Well, and Josh, you already said this. I, you know, Dan, even though you didn't get the points for the two-point question, immediately when you started segmenting your your film selections that that was something that entranced me. So, so well done there. Nice, nice creative thinking there, Daniel. I put a lot of thought into this stuff. I just don't usually get it right. That's all. <laughs> you put I a try. lot of thought in and then, and then you usually fall flat during the actual pie, but you didn't right. this time. Good job. Dude,
3: yes. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Chris. I'm actually
1: feeling, oh. man. Well done. Bilbo made it to Mount Doom.
3: <laughs> <Woo-hoo>. <laughs>
0: I'm actually feeling rather good about all this. I think we've arrived at a very special place, eh? Spiritually, ecumenically, grammatically. It's certainly been a pleasant stroll down memory lane for us here at Dorkfest, the podcast. If it was for you as well, we'd surely appreciate it if you would rate us best in show on Google, Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. Help us take dead aim at those rich podcasts get them in the crosshairs, and take them down. They can buy advertisers, but they can't buy Backbone. Don't let them forget that. You can also catch us on Instagram. That's dorkfest underscore podcast. Unfortunately, our MySpace page is currently down, and our AOL instant messenger is permanently set to a cryptic away message. Well, that about does it. Wraps it all up things seem to have worked out pretty good for Dan. And it was a pretty good podcast, don't you think? Made me laugh to beat the band. Parts, anyway. I didn't like seeing Jordan Gay Blues, but then I happened to know there's another Dorkfest, the podcast, on the way. We hope you folks enjoyed yourselves. Catch you later on down the trail. Why don't you all fade away?
3: Don't try and dig what we all say. I'm not trying to cause a big sensation. I'm just talking about my g- g-
2: generation.